Okay. Good morning, everybody. Um, would you like to find your Bible and turn to the book of Acts? And we're going to read from verse 20. No. It's got chapters, hasn't it? Chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Okay. Um, Acts chapter 20, and verse 1 through to verse 12, says this. When the uproar had ended, uh, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by uh, Sopater, son of, let's call him Pyrrhus, from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. And then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. And the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Um, for some while now, again, uh, this year, we returned to the book of Acts. And have, um, it's just been good to look through various different events that have happened. The focus at the moment now and for a while has been on Paul's life, the Apostle Paul, and various different journeys that he went on, uh, places that he, he visited, and uh, invariably planted churches. And now we arrive at chapter 20, and, and that passage could just sounds a slightly bizarre summary of uh, events. And it's good to remind ourselves of actually where John took our attention just a moment ago, which is all the way back, chapter 1, verse 1. Let's just hear that again. Luke introducing his, his second book after writing his gospel. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Implication being that as we hear uh, events that are happening in this book, we are hearing about what Jesus, the risen saviour of the world, continued to do 
and to teach. We can think of the book of Acts just as the, the acts of the apostles, the acts of a few significant figures in the early church, and of course it is that. But we could also say these are the ongoing acts of the risen Lord Jesus, who is powerfully at work. And perhaps even only a few decades after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, there are believers in Jesus who need to have their heads lifted again to who Jesus is and what he is doing as the risen saviour of the world. Sometimes in a community, a church community, heads can drop and uh, or weariness can come. And Luke, in writing this, his second part of his massive lifetime work, if you like, he is writing, I think he's primarily writing to encourage the church. I'm sure unbelievers can, can read and hear the, the book of Acts being explained. And there's so much in it, there's enough that it can cause faith to, uh, to come and for people to be born again and give their life um, to the Lord Jesus. It's evangelistic in that sense, but I wonder if it's, its primary thing is the church of Jesus needs to be encouraged. And if the church needed that just 20, 30, 40 years after the events of Jesus' life, death, and re death resurrection and ascension, then 2,000 years on, I think we need it too. And you see that's how the, the passage starts. Paul said, or Paul shared many words of encouragement we hear in those early verses as he traveled through after encouraging them in verse 1, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Then he traveled through Macedonia and then he's speaking many words of encouragement to the people. You get to the end of the, the section that we looked at, verse 12. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. I'm sure that obviously that's true. I don't know why they've said comforted because it's the same word, encouraged, that's used earlier on. So the beginning and the end, encouragement of what Jesus is continuing to do and teach in the early church. Like I say, as we go through then what's in between, we might think, well, this is slightly bizarre. What's the encouragement that God wants us to take from these events? Praise the Lord, there are three things. There are there are always three things, unless we get carried away and they're four. Or unless we get really excited about one of those three things and we only have the time to talk about two of them. I think we can be encouraged by, or by all the movement. There, there are some substantial journeys that are going on that are just touched upon in a few verses. Paul starts in, in Ephesus, we heard before about the big uproar, the riot that happened in Ephesus. We're told that after that, he, uh, he set out for Macedonia. He's been there before. We know that includes places like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. And then he's going to go on. He traveled on from there to Greece. We could wonder, does that mean that he visited Corinth again and Athens? And he's about to complete the loop, jump back in a boat and retrace his steps. Um, back where this particular journey started, discovers a plot against him 
And so he basically just goes then back in reverse, which, which may have been slightly frustrating. He's done this big journey, just needs to hop on a boat to go home, but there's a plot against him. If he gets on that boat, he might be killed. He thinks to himself, I know what, I want to stay alive. Uh, and so he goes back the other way. Uh, maybe a slower, a slower journey, um, and his plans are interrupted. But basically, Paul is on the move. And he's on the move because the gospel generates movement. Again, go right back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And Jesus gave his disciples this amazing promise. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And now, in Acts chapter 20, we are well and truly already within the ends of the earth. From Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and now uh, beginning to go global. And you might think, well, why, why all that movement? Did Paul just have a restless personality type? Did he just want to kind of knock up the air miles and go on some adventures? Well, no, he's seeing this call in God to be witnesses of the risen Lord Jesus to the ends of the earth, so he is on the move. The nations, in other words, nations of the world are on God's heart. That's why we've got all these flags up. Um, and, and actually, each flag kind of tells its own story for us uh, as a church, which I might kind of pull on a little bit later. But they're just there, again, as a reminder, God loves the nations. God loves the whole world. God created the whole world. One day, God is going to judge the whole world. And God loves the whole world. So he sent his one and only son, our Savior, to the world to rescue. So the nations, the, the, the nations of the world are on God's heart. And therefore, the nations of the world are on Paul's heart. And he can write in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, his explanation there, that it's not just going on a jolly. It says in, he says, he writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Going on just a little bit uh, further. Uh, just go down with me to verse uh, 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So Paul, he is compelled, he is energized, his life is not his own, he is on a mission, therefore he is, uh, he's moving He's on the move. Why? Well, Jesus, God himself, through his church, is on the move. The whole world is in view. Christ, the one 
through whom God is reconciling the world uh, to himself. So, so the love of Christ is compelling Paul. And he's moving on. Nations are to be on, on our heart. Uh, there have been times where God has, has particularly, uh, well, just done stuff amongst us, stirred stuff up. There are people from the nations who have gathered here to us that we might be um, representative of, of nations. And also, then God gets a hold of people and then sends them. So, um, unfortunately, I couldn't make the prayer meeting where this happened, but it was, I'm, I'm told it's, it's wonderful to be able to hear of what happened recently uh, when a group from this church went out to Oman, went out to Muscat, third flag along from the very end here, just there. Um, why is that? Well, because there was a couple with us for a few years called Tim and Becky, whom God has already got hold of, but got hold of afresh and sent there. And there's this, this ongoing relationship. We get to receive them from time to time, and then there's folk from us going to them. It's not just a jolly. God loves the nations. God cares that people from every nation might be saved and added into his church. So from different, in different ways, from time to time, there's going to be movement. There's going to be change. Because God's on, on, on the move. God's at work. Um, Rach and I had the chance, again, many of us had the chance recently, I suppose, to rub shoulders with, uh, with Mark and Debbie when they came back across um, for Chris's funeral, uh, who years ago uh, were part of this church. God gets hold of them. God stirs them. God speaks to them about going to Canada. One, two, three, four, five, six, seventh flag along. Um, and uh, God's stirring up them up again. They've been in a place called Fredericton. And uh, now God is stirring them to go and plant a church in another city in uh, Atlantic Canada, uh, in Nova Scotia, by the familiar name of Halifax, a Canadian city, same sort of size of Sheffield. And uh, again, we get to know and we get to hear and we get to pray. And there might be ways in which God involves us in going from time to time. But God's heart is that the nations would be on all of our hearts. That includes having a passion for the fourth flag along. This nation, this nation which is in desperate and dire need of the power of God in the gospel, whose only hope is a, a restoration and revival that can only come by people bowing the knee afresh to the Lord Jesus Christ. God has done great things before, God will do great things. God has to do great things again in this nation for there to be many people knowing him. And then what you see is God, God does it. God gathers people into a community and that community themselves is, becomes like a powerful representation of the good news. The good news that God pulls people together. The good news that God demolishes walls that divide different peoples. You see it because we get this list of people. Paul's gone from place to place. He's seen people saved from different cities, different backgrounds, different accents, maybe people speaking different languages or having a different mother tongue. And then to, each time he goes somewhere, maybe he kind of just invites one or two to kind of come with him. 
as they go on to the next place. So you get this kind of band of, of, of brothers whose names I only guess, really, uh, of how to pronounce. That's what God wants to do. He wants to draw people in to what he's doing. Saved and added into this, this global family. But in all that movement, sometimes there are setbacks. And they have to make an adjustment, as I mentioned earlier on. I mean, try and put yourself in Paul's shoes. You, you've literally just packed your bags and you are about to get on a boat and travel back to modern-day Turkey, just hop across, complete the loop. And then, because you're imagining that you're Paul right now, then you hear someone says to you, I've heard a rumor. And I know it's happened before. People are trying to get you. They want to do you in. So, a few days, maybe a week, I'm not quite sure, spent on a boat with those people might not be a great idea. And we might think, but God's on the move. I know those plots are out there. I've trusted my life to the Lord. I'm going to crack on. Momentum is the key here. Now, sometimes God has spoken to Paul in a vision, in a dream, and kind of affected where he went. You know, stay here. You don't have to go because I'm going to keep you safe. Or come over to Macedonia. Don't try and go to these other places right now. You know, in other words, God speaks in these kind of miraculous, dramatic, visionary ways and says, I'm going to keep you safe. On this occasion, there's no indication that that happens. There's no special word from the Lord. But Paul and his companions have got to work out. Do we get on the boat or do we go the other way? And it might feel so frustrating just to go that little bit slower. God's on the move, but sometimes progress is walking pace. They were looking forward to the wind really being in their sails and propelling them on. And I wonder if we're facing a bit of a moment like that as a church, where there are just adjustments to make. There's the same goal, there's the same destination, there's the same vision, the same desire to see people saved and added right across this city. But as you may have just been reminded in the notice moment, next week we're going to meet in three sites rather than four. Why? Just made a bit of an adjustment. Our progress might be at walking pace. We might want there to be more momentum. Four sites. Well, what about five and six? Come on, let's keep going, let's keep going, let's keep going. Of course. It's a big city. There's many people. God has got many people in this city. We want them to be saved. We want people to hear. We do want people to have the opportunity, 
to gather in areas which might just be closer to their own front door. Rather than everyone trek to the Jubilee Centre, if you see what I mean. It could have a similar feel for us. God is at work. God is on the movement. Maybe God is preparing us, and I believe he will, to, to send and go again to a fourth site. One that meets somewhere in S6. That's not the county. I mean, who knows? Maybe the Lord's calling us there as well. But I'm talking of Hillsborough, Walkley, Neck of the Woods, Stannington. Like, we believe in God. For something to happen there and other places in this city. Let's trust that God's going to have us on the move. And he's continuing uh, to teach and act and do. And so there's all this movement. But also there is there's purpose. So Paul is not just like moving like some aimless pinball, kind of bouncing around from place to place, just generally restless and needing to kind of get on the road again. He, he's moving on purpose, and that's because he's moving uh, with a message. And lo and behold, in this passage, what do we find out? That Paul has a lot to say. We're told he has many words of encouragement to speak. And then later on, we're told that on one particular occasion in Troas, he kept talking on and on. Now, some of you are starting to look a bit nervous again. Um, so let me just put you at ease. We're not going all the way to midnight tonight. In fact, I wonder partly if that is. It was an evening meeting anyway. First day of the week, they've all been at work. So they gather to meet and eat in the evening. It's Paul's last opportunity to speak to them, beware the preacher's last sermon. And so it goes on a bit longer. So if you don't fall asleep, I promise not to preach too long. Okay, but I think what it's showing us is Paul is carrying something. He's carrying a message, and it's the most important message in the whole world. For the whole world to hear. I think he can be forgiven if he wants to seize the moment and talk it's not just that he has something to say. It's not just that he has a preaching gift or a, or a public teaching kind of talent. And he's wondering, I suppose, what, what might I talk about when I kind of develop my potential? No, it's not that. Some, we're not even sure that he was that great a public speaker. It's that something is burning within him, a passion to make Jesus known. He doesn't just have a lot to say. He has a lot to say about him about the good news that can only be found in him. He is burning, so he's moving. And so when he's moving, he's talking. And if we go back to that passage in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, again, you get the flavor of his, the sense of his passion and what he so eagerly wants to talk about. He said already, Christ's love 
compels us. This isn't some unimportant add-on or aside. It'll say in verse 17, so 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. He wants people to know that. Again, as we heard earlier on, he's, he wants people to know it for themselves. New life, new creation, new relationship with God, new opportunity to be in real relationship and fellowship with him. All uh, going on, verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He, he, he's urging, he's imploring. He wants people to be reconciled to God. It's a wonderful message through Christ you can be right with God you can be in fellowship with him you can be used by him you can be kind of knitted into this global family this massive movement where all your sin is wiped clean forgiven and you see that's where the message is uncomfortable at points. He has to implore. Be reconciled to God. Something has to happen. It's not just a message that, it's okay, God's handled it all. God, God has reconciled. Whether you pay any attention to God or not, whether your life is changed or not, I oh, know you don't even have to become a new creation. I'm just letting you know, FYI, Jesus died for you. As you were completely. You know, Paul wouldn't have needed to go from place to place and risk his life if there was no kind of edge to the message. You have to be reconciled. It's not just happened without your knowledge. You've got to be reconciled to God. And the only way that can happen is through Christ. And the only way that can happen is by you being forgiven of sin. So the good news addresses the bad news, the problem of our sin, that we are not kind of by birth and by nature right with God. We have to become right with God. The number one problem, whatever we might think, when we look at the whole world and look at all its problems and global issues, the biggest problem is sin. My sin against God. Your sin. God created us and wants us to know him in meaningful, obedient, joyful relationship. But 
even just one tiny white lie from 20 years ago, if that was like, if that was it, that, that just the tiny white lie from 20 years ago, that is a glaring offense to a truly holy God. Our sin, then, well, that's, if that's true of just like one tiny thing in our minds, what about a lifetime of sin? Sin is a problem that we can't solve. It's a debt that we can't pay. It's the mistake that we can't undo. It's an offense that we cannot appease. It's a stain that we cannot cleanse. And it will bring a judgment that we cannot avoid. There is a problem. And so then when we're told, our hearts within us should be leaping for joy to be reminded. Again in that passage, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become, the offer is there, will it be accepted, that we might become the righteousness of God. It had to be this incredible, wonderful, God-directed solution. There are lots of people in sin. Jesus is the only one who has a righteousness before God. So for us, all the sinners, I don't know why I always put you this side, sorry. Uh, for us to come into this right standing with God required the one and only Son of God who had that right standing to go the other way and take all of our sin on himself and die in our place. At the heart of this message, which so energizes Paul, is that Jesus died for us. It had to be by his death and it had to be on the cross that our sin would be forgiven. And we, he has to go, why does he have to go on and on and on? Why do we do this every week? It's because there is a world that wants to deconvert you. I think that was true back then. You've got these new believers in a town, the minority, even though the message is spreading. The whole world at that time for them was kind of set up. Life revolved around worshipping lots of different gods if you want to, but when it comes down to it, you've got to worship Caesar as Lord in the Roman Empire. And that's where they live. This apostle blew through town and he shared the message and now they're just living life trying to please God and there's just that possibility that they might just get kind of sucked back into bowing the, the knee to Caesar. And so in this passage, it's not some great evangelistic trip at this point. What's Paul doing? He's just encouraging the church. Many words of encouragement. Why? 
because they needed it. What's happening right now? The church needs many words of encouragement. Why? Because we need it. You can watch an advert during the Super Bowl and realize the world is trying to deconvert Christians. Totally. That might be a bit intriguing if you don't watch the Super Bowl. It just has caused a bit of a stir. (laughs) There are maybe some wealth, I was going to call them people, wealthy people in some kind of pseudo-Christian organization pushing a message to the church, he gets us. Stop making such a big deal about sin. How does it end? It ended with this, a few words. And we, uh, the whole world was told, Jesus didn't teach hate. Jesus washed feet. And the message that people want us to get is don't teach the gospel. Don't say there's a right and a wrong. Don't underline the problem of sin. We will allow you Christians to kind of vaguely be part of society if all you do is just serve, just wash feet, just, just kind of like tuck in with the world's agenda. Of course Jesus washes feet. It's a demonstration of incredible humility. And the disciples would recognize it and go, don't wash my, don't wash my feet. Well, that's what Peter would say. Recognize the absolute wonder of what the saviour of the world was doing. Speaking the truth with many words is really important. This is the air we breathe, and it can get to us sometimes. I'm just going to be that nice Christian that does nice things. I'm not going to say what the actual message is anymore. I'm not going to speak out about Jesus and that he is the saviour and the only saviour of the whole world. The world is, is a dark, subtly, and, but also powerfully and obviously at times, anti-Christ. Let's be enthusiastic with the message that we've received. So what do we make then about the miracle? What is that all about? That you, we're told Eutychus fell out of the window when he fell deeply asleep as Paul was going... On and on. What are we supposed to take from that? Did Paul talk too much for too long? Or should Eutychus have been more careful in where he chose to sit? What are we supposed to take from what happened there in in Troas? And we're kind of unable to kind of picture the scene. We're even told at verse 8... There were, many, there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Well, thank you, Luke, for telling us that. We get that detail. I mean, stick that on your Facebook profile. 
Hallelujah. But but it's the neighbors helping us to kind of picture the scene. It's dark outside. People have been working all day. They've just had something to eat. And now they're settling down to listen to Paul. And he's talking for a long time. There are lights in the room, just kind of, not like these, kind of like gentle candlelight, just flickering. And you've all had, we've all had that experience, maybe on more like the car journey, perhaps, where you just start, you think, or maybe the, maybe, maybe the work meeting after lunch, and you're hoping that nobody noticed what happened around two o'clock in the afternoon, and your eyes just began to glaze and your head was leaning over. You think you just fell asleep like this, and no one might have noticed. But your colleague points out afterwards that you fell asleep like this. (laughs) Right, next to the chair of the meeting. Okay, they noticed. Just thankfully you didn't fall out of the window at, at, at that point. So, here's just a couple of things to note about the miracle. It's kind of ordinary. It's almost normal. What would happen here? Seriously, if if something similar happened, I don't think it's possible to fall out these windows. Let's not try. But if we had that kind of miracle happen, everything else would stop. That would like be this pinnacle moment. The miracle took place. This is awesome. Maybe we'd spill out onto the streets. You'd tell everybody you knew. Whatever we had planned would stop. Let's get the person to... Eutychus, Eutychus, tell us what happened. Well, he doesn't actually know because he fell asleep. Uh, Okay, you were close to him. You come and say, what did you see? And we'd like go over and over the story and and exactly how it unfolded. And like, Paul, what did you do? Why did you do that? Well, I was a little bit inspired by Elisha, I suppose, and I kind of stretched myself out. and Describe it, describe it. Write an article, blog, all sorts. We'd go to town on it. What happens there is they all just pick themselves up and go back upstairs. Have a little bit more to eat. And what happens then? Paul keeps talking. After that little minor interruption, you, you're, you're okay, Eutychus. Sit in the middle of the room, mate. Over there. Um, it just keeps going. Why? Because well, almost you just get the message, miracles are to be expected. Miracles can happen. We're sharing the message of a saviour who died and rose again to new life. Now, as a result, anything's possible. We're talking about the power of God to change your life. That's what Paul was going on and on and on about. Almost they just get this little object lesson in the middle of the message. As I was saying, God can raise the dead. As I was saying, I believe in the power of the resurrection. So miracles are normal, and perhaps miracles are not the most important thing. They point to the most important person, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ and his power to transform lives. It it intrigues me, this passage. We see see one setback. Someone's trying to kill Paul, and, and there's no kind of like special visitation from God. They just have to go the other way. That's how one setback is dealt with. There's this other setback 
Eutychus falling out of the window could have slightly dampened the mood. But God's at work, and on that occasion, his power is present that through Paul kind of stretching himself out on Eutychus' body, he's raised to life. This is a powerful gospel with power to change lives. Be encouraged, City Church Sheffield. God is on the move. God loves the nations of the world. Jesus is the saviour of the world. He will judge the world, but he gave up his life for the world, and he's coming back. And the good news that is in his name has power to change lives. And because he is still alive, Jesus is continuing to do and to teach today in 2024 in the UK, in this messed up nation and in this city. We can expect God to be at work. We can expect there to be a church that's on the move, even when it encounters setbacks. We can expect a message to bring new life and see people saved. And we can expect God from time to time to do the absolutely impossible to demonstrate the all-importance of this message of new life in Christ. Should we be encouraged? Yes. Should we believe God? Yes. And should we reckon this is what we're a part of? This is what we're involved... Oh, you can keep answering if you like. <laughs> this is... I've lost my thread. But it's good news, isn't it? Hallelujah. Amen. Let's look forward to seeing how he answers prayers the rest of this year. Let's stand. Let's worship God. <laughs>